This episode is brought to you in part by Hazelade.com. Hazelade is an online retailer of natural therapeutic hazelwood and Baltic amber jewelry based out of Montreal. With over 700 unique sizes, colors, and styles, there's something for everyone. Hazelwood is a natural way to address acid-related issues like heartburn, acid reflux, and even some kinds of eczema. Baltic amber is useful in naturally treating pain and inflammation. Visit hazelade.com and use the coupon code UPFORD to get 10% off your order. Hi, I'm Hannah Bailey. And I'm Tefra Jemian. Welcome to Yeah, a show about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah! This week, we are talking about the first book of the Seven Waters trilogy, Daughter of the Forest, written by Juliette Marillier. It's, uh, it was assigned to us by Erica Stetchberry, who is a friend and also was an Indiegogo donor. Daughter of the Forest is a retelling of the fairy tale, the Swan Brothers or the Six Swans. There's a few different names for it. Um, it is the story of a girl who has six brothers. They are put under an enchantment and turned into stones, not stones. They are turned into swans. And she has to go through tasks in silence in order to transform them back into her brothers. Um, the, the major part of that is taking a vow of silence over many years and being, uh, unable to communicate her story, and also she must do every part of her task herself. This is a pretty classic 1990s fairy tale retelling. It was written in 1998. Uh, we haven't done a book this old in a while. Yeah, true. Um, so we have a lot to say. Yeah. Uh, positive and negative, so let's get into it. Yeah. General impressions. Yeah, so I mean, like, I... I enjoyed reading this book. Like it was it was like an immersive fairy tale retelling. I also so you were very familiar with this fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um I was not. I think I had like maybe heard it referenced before, but I didn't know the story. So it was I mean, it's an interesting fairy tale retelling. It's got lots of like cool mythology stuff going on. And like it's very readable. Like I, I did not have to like force myself to finish it. Um sorry, <laughs> the bar's low. <laughs> um, but uh yeah no so it's it's like an enjoyable like sort of like romancy fairy tale romp but there are there are things i would say this is a book that like i enjoyed by sort of just putting my discomfort in a box yeah. <laughs> and and dealing with it later so that's what we're going to do right now is we're going to we're going to put our discomfort in a box and deal with it later on in the show yeah. um, and talk about, yeah, the things that we liked. Like, I think the the world building was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of like lush and it's got a lot of good, like, just that like lush fairy tale feel yeah. to it. Now, from my perspective, just talking about general impressions, mm-hmm. I found the first 200 pages unnecessary. I, I the first 200 pages were a slog and I don't mm. think they set the story up in any way that couldn't have been done in much less basically until Una the sorceress showed up I had no idea what fairy tale it was mm-hmm. I knew it was a fairy tale retelling I was like looking online being like what fairy tale is this <laughs> and for me just nitpicky if you're doing a fairy tale retelling it should be clear from the beginning yeah. one of the 
appeals of fairy tales is that they're familiar narratives and uh and it should be established from the get-go in Mm -hmm. my opinion and so for the first 200 pages i was like i don't know how i'm gonna get through this and it's the first 200 pages like it is a it is a (laughs) this is a long book book. this is Um, a big book um but then after that uh once the action got going I really found I found there were sections for me. The first section, yes. the first 200 pages was a slog. Mm-hmm. The the middle 200 pages were great. I was completely mm-hmm. absorbed. So the middle 200 pages is that where she is like at the cave? I'm guessing roughly. Yeah, th- yeah. That, that's but that's what you're calling that yeah. section is where yeah. she's like at the cave and just like, you know, living her sort of hermity yeah. life and spinning her shirts. Yeah, seeing yeah. her brothers and like her that brothers. was yeah. I think just the strongest point of the book. Yeah, it's very like cozy and well, I mean cozy is the wrong, but it's like there's something sort of peaceful and it's even just just I found it was so focused on her for once. Yes. Which we're going to get into to mm-hmm. later, but I found I really enjoyed seeing Sorha like on her own um doing her work and focusing on herself yes i found that a really powerful storytelling device the end of the book so the section like with the britons etc was back and forth for me i was gripped and Mm -hmm. i and i was reading it i couldn't stop reading it yes but a lot more of the issues i have with the book came up Mm -hmm. in that section and then again the last few chapters i just the beginning and end of this book just drag Mm-hmm. I think in a way that that they don't have to. I think a good edit would really like kind of mm-hmm. bring it together into a more readable text. <laughs> Sorry, I'm aware that we didn't talk about this when we were planning this episode. It just I, I had to no. address the structural. I, I agree. Like yeah. it, it, it is a very long book that maybe didn't have to be as long yeah. as it was. Yeah, it's. Um. Huge. I mean, like okay, so I'm used to reading. Lately, we've been reading a lot of the modern YA yes. novels, which are two to three hundred pages. So settling into a 700-pager was, like, mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> but the thing is, like, I I can burn through a 700-page book if it is, like... Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is not um, a 700-page book. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix yeah. I read in a day. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, like, it, it, it hits the bar of being a 700-page book that I did finish, so, <laughs> um, but I've got to agree. I mean, the yeah. world building is beautiful. Mm-hmm. A few little nitpicky things. I think she has some trouble kind of giving us enough information. It took mm. me quite a while to figure out where the fuck they were. Like, oh, like to figure like out Ireland, that they were or? in Ireland. Yeah, it okay. took me a very long time to figure that out. I couldn't tell huh. if they were supposed to be in northern France or Ireland or an imaginary country for like the first half of the book. I thought it was a fantasy land that oh, was a retelling. So I was just kind of lost geographically. Interesting. See, I think I knew it was Ireland okay. going in. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. I think you kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, it's like pretty somebody- Irish names. Yeah. But like. Well, see, so because it was fantasy, I just assumed it was like a fantasy world. So this one might okay. be on me. This one might be on me because they are very Irish names. Mm-hmm. I, the geography threw me off. I think they refer to where they are as Aaron at times as well. But later in the book. Only later in the book. Like, okay. I think it's I think it's the Britons who refer to it as Aaron. Okay, interesting. But again, this is, it's possible. This is me being nitpicky. I might have missed that. That <laughs> I'm yeah. perfectly willing to accept that might be on me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, for like you said, I'm familiar with this fairy tale. It has always mm-hmm. been one of my favorite fairy okay. tales. I, uh, I really like the, um, the like task fairy tales i like yes. the fairy tales where there's a curse and somebody has to perform a task complete mm-hmm. a task 
to lift it. One of my favorite um, books, actually, which I would like to look up one day was a mm-hmm. retelling, kind of dark retelling of um, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Time. Oh. Turning it into like a YA quest book. Interesting. And, uh, it, so I like that. Wait, is, that is that a fairy tale? Um, I mean, I'm just you, aware of the like Simon and Garfunkel song. Right. So if you listen to it, there's it's oh, like there's tell her to make me a cambric shirt without any seam or needlework. Tell me to oh, tell him okay. to sew me an acre of land between oh. the salt water and the sea strand. So it's kind of taking each of those tasks. And, oh, and, interesting. And it is about a curse. I'm going to just put this bottle on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah. And I love that. And I love okay. that element of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I love about fairy tale retellings is when they kind of like they expand on what we know of the story and they give you kind of some interiority of the characters and that kind of thing. Do you yeah. find that this book like succeeds at that as a fairy tale retelling? So what I really like about this book as a fairy tale retelling mm-hmm. is that it stays extremely true to the original tale. It doesn't take liberties with the narrative mm-hmm. while really fleshing out the characters. And that That's for cool. me that is exactly what you want from a fairy tale mm-hmm. retelling. I get really angry when people do a fairy tale retelling and take so many liberties with the narrative that you can barely recognize it Mm -hmm. and this I think like walked that line perfectly of giving us enough information that we felt really invested Mm -hmm. um, while keeping it recognizable after you got through the first 200 pages Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the point of Simon as a character yeah well the the point of Simon as a character is um, like essentially the point of Simon as a character is to give the Britons a reason to keep Sorcha. That's, yeah. Okay. That's, that's the only point of Simon as a character. Yeah, I get that. Um, I just didn't understand why they, like, built up this relationship between her and Simon. Yeah. I didn't understand why Simon had that jealousy thing. Like, I just, it, mm-hmm. it felt like maybe a storyline that she had ideas for that didn't come through. Yeah. I mean, like, I think the point of it is, like, she has to build up a relationship with him. Um, so that he gives her the token. Right. So that Red finds the token and is like, you must come with me until you are willing to tell me about what happened to my brother. Again, though, Um, this is a storyline that I feel could be condensed into a paragraph, you know, a chapter of wounded Britain. I helped him, healed him, helped him escape. Mm -hmm. We developed a warm relationship. He left me a token. Mm -hmm. Don't need to spend 100 pages on Yes. Although that... We're going to touch on on why that is later, I think. I have theories. Okay. <laughs> uh, I remembered one other thing that I really liked. I yeah. really like the relationship between her and her brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that it is, like, really warm and lovely. Mm-hmm. And I like how, like, fleshed out each of them are mm-hmm. with their sort of distinct personalities. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that one of the um, sort of violences that the sorceress did was pulling one of their brothers away. Yes. And even that was short-lived. Mm-hmm. Like that she couldn't she couldn't she maintain couldn't. that very yeah. long. I did really like that. I do wish the book had dwelled more on, on Una as a villain. Yeah. We sort of set her up as a villain and then hopped on to another villain and then another villain. And it mm-hmm. was sort of like she was such a compelling character. Yes. And then she just kind of faded out of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the villain becomes... Richard, really. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they and and like again she tries to draw a link between richard and una but Mm -hmm. i just again i feel like it's not very successful yeah i feel like she maybe didn't have the best control of all her storylines um fair which to be fair i mean it's a complicated book yes but yeah i mean it's 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 beautiful i loved all of the uh the knowledge of the pagan calendar the knowledge Mm -hmm. of the holidays um like she she clearly i mean she might be pagan it's possible Mm -hmm. because she has like clearly a very intimate knowledge yeah erica thought you would enjoy that bit i did i did very much yeah and um Mm -hmm. i enjoyed all the green witch sides of things and um i also enjoyed the acknowledgement that in the ninth century Mm -hmm. christians and pagans just kind of lived side by side in Mm -hmm. britain and didn't really bother each other too much and just kind of yeah yeah i thought that was very interesting and cool the whole thing with father brian yeah yeah and then later the um the priest who like could easily have become the villain but was very objective very much wanted proof yeah i liked that i liked the nuance around religion but there were also a a whole lot of things just a whole lot of things that we had some feelings about that we re- i mean for me that i really really did not like and that made this book very difficult for me to read mm-hmm. i think all of the negatives all of the things that we were both found really distasteful mm-hmm. um center around sorha's presentation as a character and especially just a lot about her age the way she's characterized um, and the way mm-hmm. in which she suffers. And I'm going to just throw that yes. over to you because you have so much to say. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was interesting because I think, I think I had like a less difficult time reading this book because I think I maybe did a more, like I did more of the just kind of shoving my discomfort into a box and ignoring it while I was reading it. And then we were talking more while you were reading it because I read it before you did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, oh yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think my well, I don't know if this is my biggest problem because I have the same problems you have as well. But um, you use the phrase misery porn to describe what I was describing. And it's very like, I just like, this book has this pattern where like things are sort of okay or nice for her. And then just like shit upon shit happens. And like some of it is necessary to the storyline, but some of it just seems like gratuitous and unnecessary. Like, why does her like garden that she loves and is like so connected to have to get just destroyed? Like that 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 part broke me. And like, why does her dog have to get killed? And why does Father Brian have to die? And why does just like it's just like I feel like there are too many fantasy books in like the 80s and 90s that like the whole theme is just like woman suffers stoically and I'm very over it yeah and no thank you I do want to actually um push back on one scene okay which for me the destruction of the garden is the most compelling scene in the book oh it's extremely compelling but I hate it well yeah no I mean it is it's so clearly violence and for Mm -hmm. me I contrast that scene with some of the scenes of more gratuitous bodily violence that we're gonna get to later um because i find the destruction of the garden so compelling and it's Mm -hmm. and it so communicates just how una is stamping her out and i'm currently Mm -hmm. growing my little seedlings so it like affected me very deeply but i actually think that is a really 
Like, I agree. The, just the piling up of her garden and her dog and this and that. Yeah. I think it could have just been her garden. Yeah. You know? And yeah, that would have communicated enough. Everything. That's like the center of her power. That for a green witch's garden to get destroyed, that's like, yeah. that's, that's, that's raising someone's church, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. That was maybe one of the more necessary parts of the yeah. misery cycle. Oh, this reminds me, I said I was going to loop back to something. I think part of why the, um, the thing with, um, oh, what's, what's, what's his name? What's the brother's name? She has six brothers. No, not her brother, Red's brother. Simon. Simon. Um, <laughs> I think part of why that is drawn out so long is just to like add to the misery porn right. because it's that that part actually made me quite uncomfortable because yeah. it's this like her like tenderly caring for and then just being like abused. Well, and she's clearly too young. Everybody's yeah. saying she's too young to tend injuries like these. She's too young to see this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but she's the only one. Like, really? Are you fucking kidding me? A 12-year-old child is the only healer in your community? Because mm-hmm. that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that it's supposed to be a comment on how she's, like, you know, like, has magical gifts. But it's but- just, like, the way that he treats her really... And the fact that she, like... He treats her that way, but she cares for him. Yeah. Makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it, it it feels like a, an abuse. It's an abuse dynamic that yeah. makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. So just going back quickly to the like piling up thing upon thing. For mm-hmm. me, the moment where I was like, oh, come on, really? Yeah. Was when there's the fire and her work gets burned. Right. It was just like, there have been so many obstacles. Like... Mm-hmm. That felt like one, I mean, several violations too far. Yeah. Um, that just felt like, so like, have you watched all of Grey's Anatomy yet? No. Okay. No, I stopped like after the plane crash because yeah. like basically the reason that I watched Grey's Anatomy is for Cali in Arizona and then yeah. they were starting to have problems and I was yeah. like, no, thank you. Uh, they they <laughs> overcome those for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly and Arizona persist. But anyway, okay. <laughs> there's this part around the plane crash, I think like a season before, a season after, mm-hmm. where it is just like trauma after trauma after trauma. Like there's yeah. a plane crash, there's a shooting, there's like George mm-hmm. dies, there's like yeah. just just like all this shit happens. And and Tom and I were watching it and I was just like, like what? Like, mm-hmm. you know, after a while you start to just be like, no, I want character development. I mm-hmm. want like storylines I don't want just shock value Mm -hmm. and that was what it really felt like it felt like crutches it felt like oh just in case you haven't figured it out yet Sorha like has a really shitty deal yeah I think and I think the other thing that bothers me about that is this goes back to the trope of like she has such a shitty deal and she just sort of takes it all Mm mm-hmm um, like, like she, she gets like sad about it, but she also just like, I don't know, there's, there's like a resignation in yeah. the way yeah. that she reacts to all of it that just like really hurts me. Yeah. yeah. One, like something I have said about this book is that if Sorka was 18 when it started, mm-hmm. a lot of my issues with it would not be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she is 12, possibly not even 12 when the book starts. Yeah. Yeah. She's she has very not young. hit puberty yet. And she is already the healer in the community. Mm-hmm. She is the mother figure in their family. Yeah. And her six big brothers kind of let her do that, let her shoulder that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother died when she was born. And there's very, very much the sense that her mother died and she took her place. 
mm-hmm. you know, as an infant, that there's this yeah. mantle of responsibility that you're just born into mm-hmm. as a girl. Yeah. Um, this comes up when she has to break the curse that is on all her brothers. Mm-hmm. And her brothers are saying she is too young to do this. One of her brothers is objecting, yeah. saying like, Mm-hmm. No, it's our job as her big brothers to say, you know what? Just let us be swans and go mm-hmm. live your life because this is an impossible task. Yeah. And you are going to waste your life trying to complete it. And mm-hmm. and you need to just move on. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other brothers is like, no, she was always the one who's strong enough to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's this. Well, she's a child. She's a child. However, and this yeah. this is another one of my problems. She's a child who never once acts like a child. So it's this weird mismatch where you're told that she's 11 or whatever, but she acts like an adult. Yeah. Um, And I think that this is like a trope in like 80s, 90s fantasy of like, like characters who were female characters who are like factually like preteens or early teens, but who act like adults. Yeah. And and I think that is sort of used as an excuse for it to be okay for like horrible stuff to happen to twelve year olds. Yeah. Um. And as an excuse for like horrifying age differences to be classified as romance. Yeah. And I feel like part uh. of it is maybe the like oh, but in the olden times, young girls had all of this. But, but it's like mean it was okay. But it's also not true. Like. If you were a noble, you would be married off at a young age to to secure the bag, to like <laughs> secure your political alliance. Mm-hmm. But, but you wouldn't be living together. You wouldn't be having sex. You would wait to consummate the marriage till you were at least in your mid to late teens. Usually your spouse would be around the same age as you. And, and that's a noble child who you know, doesn't have to worry about making their money or anything like that. Like, they still essentially get to be a child. A a peasant girl, I'm sorry, she's 11 years old. She maintains an enormous urban vegetable garden and takes care of all the religious side of the household and does all the offerings and stuff. Like, that's not real. That's not real. If an 11-year-old is that responsible, something is gravely wrong. Yeah, and so I just, like, maybe this is, maybe we dive into this for a second. Like, why is it that fantasy books like this have these characters? Like, why are we so fascinated with preteen girls who act like grown women? Uh. Why? Because this is not that just a this book problem. No, it's a, and it's a hard question for me to answer because for me, when I'm reading a book like this, it, mm-hmm. it pulls me out. I don't have an appeal. As a 12-year-old, I saw the appeal. As a 12-year-old, it appealed to me because I wanted to believe that Mm -hmm. I was totally self-sufficient, which is why when we were talking about whether or not this book is YA, that's why to me it feels like it is because I feel like the appeal of the character is really to a character who's that age, to a reader who's that age. Yeah. I think definitely. Do you think there's an adult? Like, I I can't wrap my head around. My my mind is going to places that I hope aren't true, Mm -hmm. which is like, is this like a way to make like adult men's attraction to teenagers somehow justifiable? Um, to teenage girls specifically because girls are so mature, so much early like is it is it a product of that really gross like justification of like grown men being into 15 year olds. I think whether or not it's intentional, it's definitely an aspect. 
I'm, like it feeds that culture for sure. Books like this feed that culture. I know when I was an 11 and 12 year old reading these books, I would be like, if I, because I would have crushes on men who were like 10 to 12 years older than me, because you do at that age. Mm-hmm. And I would read it and be like, see, there's a hope because in this fairy tale retelling, like <laughs> it's normal and fated. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, but it's like, it's not just girls who have crushes on men 15 years older than them at yeah. 12. Yeah. Like, boys also have crushes on women. Like, it's yes. just like when you're that age, yes. you like often develop crushes yes. on like your teachers or whatever. And normalizing it opens kids up to predators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, normalizing it as like a, as like a real relationship thing. Like, sure, like normalize that like you will be attracted to people who are 15 years older than yeah. you, but like, that is not something that will ever be acted on. Yeah. Like, that, it's fine. Well, and the responsibility has to be on the adult, which for a little while in this book I thought might be happening, and then it just let me down massively. Mm-hmm. I think that gives us, like, a nice segue into talking about some of the sexual violence and some of the really uncomfortable things around sexuality. Mm-hmm. So the point at which I almost quit reading this book is that about halfway through, um, Sorka is very graphically raped by a gang of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has just barely started menstruating. I mean, she's, she, she's very, very young. Mm-hmm. And the book spends a lot of time on that scene and yeah. goes into a lot of detail about the actual acts, mm-hmm. not just, you know, the recovery, the healing, whatever, but, mm-hmm. but the rape itself. Um, yeah. I really hate that the one, I mean, we can get into the problems of this too, but the one consensual sex scene in the book is a couple of sentences and the rape scene is several pages. It's like, mm-hmm. yep. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And like, so I'm not against depicting sexual violence in books, even in, mm-hmm. in young adult books. I am against gratuitous sexual violence, mm-hmm. gratuitous depictions. Well, it's part of that misery porn. Yeah. Right? Like, I think, I think if you want to portray sexual violence, like, uh, ethically in a book, you want to focus on... Like, like, you can focus on the trauma, of course, but, like, you focus on the trauma as, like, dealing with the trauma. Yeah. And you don't focus on, like, just, like, the graphic awfulness of it. Yeah. Exactly. Because um, that's not useful, and that's no. just... It's, it's, it's misery porn yeah. is what it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and, and no thank you. Yeah. No, it's really... I think it's something that would not fly today, thankfully. Yeah. But it's really gross and and it was triggering and it was just awful. Um and the the misery porn in this book that got the most uncomfortable for me was grown men abusing her in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um whether that was leaning too much on her, putting way too much responsibility on her or directly verbally abusing and threatening her like Richard mm-hmm. or sexual violence. And all the people who are supposed to protect her, her brothers, the the lady of the forest, who's like, she's supposed to be the special daughter of the forest. And mm-hmm. like the guardian of the forest only shows up to be like, yep, this is going to really suck and then disappears. I feel like that could have been such a powerful scene if instead of her getting attacked, it had been a scene where she's in danger and the forest protects her. 
Mm-hmm. I just think that could have changed the whole tone of this book. If it was constantly being in danger and having this very difficult task, but being protected all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because narratively, the function of that scene is to make her have to leave her safe cave yeah. in the forest. Yeah. And that could totally be fulfilled by attempt, like, by... Yeah. By them attempting to attack her and not succeeding. Or the lady of the forest tells her, you're not safe here. You need to go. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it could like, just be that. And yeah. and like if I think I think the other thing that really got me about that is there's there's the double violation and just like double like horrible trauma in that of like the rape. And then also her dog is killed. Yeah. Her dog who has been her only companion. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it, both of those things did not need to happen. Violence towards dogs is like violence towards animals is is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just, I mean, I found that gross. And yeah. I found it gross also that, that the quote unquote love story, I can't even say it without scare quotes. She's a young teen and the guy she ends up with is at least 10 years older than her mm-hmm. and meets her when she is a child, refers to her repeatedly as a child over and over which I thought maybe you know she was not going to end up with the guy who is clearly an adult while she is a child Mm -hmm. but no at the end it's like oh and we were always meant for each other and they get married when she's 16 and he's in his mid-20s I just want to suggest that putting in a book that even if it's not primarily intended for children will definitely go to children Mm -hmm. that 16 is a full adult is a dangerous notion yeah um which as the 16 year old i would have just been like but i am an adult yeah yeah it's very oh the okay the other thing that really bothered me about her in red and i don't know if this bothered you i like there was something that just like icked me about him just giving her a name Mm. i think that it's like supposed to be like sweet or something but it actually really just, like, I don't know, it made me very uncomfortable. I don't think he gave her a name. I think that women in the household gave her a name. Oh, I was pretty sure that he's the one who starts calling her Jenny. I know that there's a scene where Marjorie and some of the other women are saying we need to choose a name and they suggest one. And then oh, somebody is like Jenny and that might have been him. I don't remember. I know it's definitely his household. I'm not sure okay. it's him himself. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember for sure. Yeah, no, that, it didn't squick me out just because I, like, I, uh, they don't treat her as, like, a full human at any point. I mean, it's Um, so, it's kind of like a pet. It's so tricky because, like, I mean, you see that they want to call her something, and if she's, has no way to tell them her name, like, they kind of have to give her a name, but it just, I don't know, there was something about it. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot about it that was just a key. I mean, also, just quite simply, she's his prisoner. Yeah. And she is constantly acting grateful to him. Like, so much so that she thinks he has been bewitched to keep her safe. Right. Which he's not really. He's he's not really. Like, he allows her to be mistreated in his house. Mm -hmm. He... Allows her to go around in rags. He he does not say... You know, simple way for him to do it would be to say, I am adopting her. She is like my daughter. You know? Yeah. The age gap is enough that you could spin it that way. Um, but no, there's there has to be this weird sexual tension. 
She's made aware of his desire for her through his extremely creepy uncle, who is constantly commenting on her body and sexually harassing her and sexually abusing her visit verbally. It's just very icky. And for a while, I was like, okay, he's engaged to, like, a good woman, maybe, like, nope, nope, nope. They couldn't possibly get married because he's so in love with this child who he has never spoken to because she can't talk. Yeah, Yeah, that's the other thing is, like, men falling in love with women who can't speak is a trope, and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I want to also talk about my other least favorite thing in this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, okay, I think I have to, I think yeah, I have yeah, to go add. back because I feel like there's some sort of internalized ableism because obviously, like, m- men can fall in love with mute women. Like, that's, the, like, deaf and mute people can fall in love with hearing people and, like, that can be a thing. But there's, like, a fantasy trope of, like, women who can't speak and... <sighs> well, it's because they're a blank canvas that you can project whatever personality you want onto. Yeah, and they don't, like, I think I think it's that they don't, like, communicate in other ways. Yeah. Like, in the real world, if somebody who is, who doesn't speak is being romanced by some, well, by anyone, they're probably using sign language. They're probably yeah. communicating in some form of language. Yeah. Um, and not just sort of, like, the communing of their souls. Yeah. Um, Which, like, has clearly been one-sided for a long time before Sarah is made aware of it. She marries him against her will. She's coerced into it. Mm-hmm. I really don't like the getting coerced into marrying him. Mm-hmm. And then going home and being with her brothers and setting up her life again. And then suddenly just being like, oh, now that my hands are pretty, I miss him so much. Like, mm-hmm. it's just icky. Yeah. The other, like, large thing that sticks in my craw in this book, which is less serious. Mm-hmm. She doesn't eat. True. I mean, let's not say that that's less serious, though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she she should have died of starvation several times over in this book. There mm-hmm. are so many times where she's like, and I hadn't eaten in days and days and days. And I'm just like, and now you're like running through the forest, harvesting things and protecting people. No, you are not. You are lying feebly on the floor of your cave because you have not eaten. And um, mm-hmm. And then even when she goes to like a household and she is being taken care of and she is being offered enough food, mm-hmm. she is still like, oh, and I just I just don't eat. I just don't eat food. My body, having starved for so long, now rejects food. And it's like, that's that's not how starvation works. No, I mean, like, I think it sort of worked like that for a little while. But then, like, like you definitely have to ease back into eating You ease eating back food. into it, and then you can eat properly. And then you can eat properly. Um, There's a quote that I sent to you while I was reading it. And I'm going to read mm-hmm. it here. Because, yeah. like, I just want to highlight how fucked it is. Mm-hmm. It says after she's been for several months in the household, so no longer starvation, shriveled stomach. Mm -hmm. They were always trying to make me eat, but my body was long used to denial and accepted only small quantities of the plainest fare. A little bread, some fruit, a bowl of barley broth, occasionally cheese. They thought I starved myself, but I did well enough. Besides, it concentrated the mind better going without. I remember Father Brian saying that once. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think, is is this not part of the misery porn? Can I just speak for a moment to the danger 
of giving teenagers a book that says, everybody thinks I'm starving myself, but I know better, and it focuses my mind. Yup. That is some eating disorder justification shit. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think it's also like, some really toxic fucked up like idea of the perfect woman as you know not having bodily functions and not needing to eat yeah and and being able to endure unimaginable unimaginable suffering with poise and calm and it's just I don't like it no I don't like it at all you 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 can survive on fruit bread and barley broth if you eat enough of it Mm -hmm. you can't survive on a few bites of it Um, you certainly wouldn't have the energy to be harvesting wild vines and like, like I kept reading it and being like, oh, you feel so weak and feeble. Have you tried eating some damn food? Like, yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. This is an anorexic protagonist. Mm -hmm. She has anorexia very clearly. She refuses to eat. She has convinced herself that her body rejects food and that she is healthier that way. Those are hallmarks of an anorexic character. Yep. And the book glorifies it as a virtue. And that's just unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and also, like, her her, her um, rape makes her averse to sex, to contact, uh, to, wounds her deeply. Mm-hmm. So not only does she refuse food, she also refuses sex or touch or company. I mean, it really is just, like, mm-hmm. the perfect ascetic, right? Ascetic? I don't know. Anyway, it's just, like... I think both are acceptable pronunciations. <laughs> and it's just, it's toxic. It's a its a toxic idea to normalize. Yeah, and I think I also, this, this I don't know if this is directly related, but another thing that makes me uncomfortable is just any, anytime there is like an uncomplicated relationship that is like good, it gets tainted. Like I forget the name Marjorie, right? Yeah. Like she, she actually has like a really lovely friendship with Marjorie. Yeah. That is, that I don't think is toxic or, like, fucked up. And I think it's really nice. And then that gets taken away. Marjorie and John have a really beautiful, warm marriage. And then that gets taken away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this idea that sort of healthy relationships cannot survive. Well, and same with, like, her brothers. She has a lovely relationship with them. And then... Yeah. 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 So, I mean, yeah. If you can kind of... I, I couldn't get around just how devastated I was Mm -hmm. for this protagonist and how her happily ever after was actually just more like her abuse ending yeah I mean like she marries the guy right and she's back Mm -hmm. at her home and she has her brothers but her brothers are deeply traumatized her father is deeply traumatized Mm -hmm. and her husband has been abusing her through the whole book So, sort of once you see those dynamics, it's very hard. It was very hard for me to put that aside. Mm -hmm. Um, Partly because the things that I had issues with are things I'm, like, highly sensitized to right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like, definite huge trigger warning on this book. But that just, it it felt like it would have been so easy to change those things Mm -hmm. and not tell that story. Yeah, like if she if she had been if she had been like eight years older, that would have helped yeah. enormously. Yeah. Um, and and just some of the gratuitous abuse. And if she had been at all at all empowered by her relationship with the forest, mm-hmm. it yes. seemed like daughter of the forest meant now the forest kicks you around like everybody else. Yeah, it was not empowering, and and for me, mm-hmm. it was just a really like miserable depiction of 
of paganism and witchcraft because it wasn't empowering. It was like you have herb knowledge in order to help other people and never yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much like her only power seems to be an endless ability to endure trauma. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that she was weaving... uh, You know what? I have to double check this. I am pretty sure... That in the original fairy tale, it is not a fiber that destroys her hands. Oh, it's not like stinging nettle. I'm pretty sure. It might be nettle. I have to find out. But um, like I might be wrong about that. But my memory of it was that it was just weaving shirts. Okay. (laughs) And not. um, Although, you know what? It's a grim fairy tale. So like probably it's nettles. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean like the brothers Oh no, it is real. it is out of nettles. It metals. is it metals, is out of yeah. nettles, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think we wanted to wrap up by talking about two things. So, how 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 it's acceptable to portray women in uh in YA and fantasy 20 years ago versus now. Mm-hmm. And I think that this book is a really good illustration of that. Yeah. Because this was fine. In the late 90s. There were so many of these there books. Were so I read many. so many of these books in the late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is not just a this book problem. No. No, absolutely not. Um, uh, always historical. Always yes. historical or fantasy and kind of justifying, in this world, this is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think these books are still being published. Like, or at least, like, I don't think new books like this are being published. I think you're right. And I think that that is really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's progress. I am not one for censoring books. No. Very much. I am, however, one for not marketing inappropriate content to children. Yeah. And uh, I really think books like this should not be marketed to children or put in the children's rooms of libraries anymore. Mm-hmm. And and part <sighs> of that is like, I think we, we were talking about this and I don't think we came to a firm conclusion. I don't think this book is actually like categorized at a publishing level as YA. Right. But to an extent you are marketing a book to children by having a child age protagonist and like having prose that is readable by a teenager yeah like there are books with child age protagonists i guess that like really a child would not read but this is not one of those i don't think an adult would enjoy this would read this Mm mm-hmm like, I mean, there are adults who would enjoy it, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> we were given it by an adult who yeah. enjoyed it. But but two, and I think that this is, I'm, I, maybe I'm putting words in her mouth. Yeah. But Erica read this as a, as, uh, right. as a young teenager yeah. first. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit. Like, I think there's a different way that you experience books that you liked uncomplicatedly before you realized what was wrong with them and yeah. and you still i think that that colors your later readings yeah. well, um we, and i think that like i definitely have books like that that like reading them as an adult like i kind of see that there are problematic elements but i loved them when i first read them so i still love them now and i feel like i would have done this with this book if i had read this book at 14 i told you that this book reminded me of robin mckinley's beauty which mm-hmm. is a book i loved as a teenager i read so many times mm-hmm. and i found it it's on script i reread it yeah. um, last summer and uh, was just like, it's the same thing. A teenager marries a guy in his 40s at the end of it. There are 
just it's just there's just a lot of ugly dynamics in it Mm -hmm. and um but I loved it and I can still read it and enjoy it because Mm -hmm. I remember how I felt when I first read it that that summer that I was checking it out of the library every week and just tearing through it (laughs) I am however very glad that the market for that kind of narrative seems to have dwindled a bit Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, I mean, what I what I said about this book, I stand by this. It reads like a romance novel, just a romance novel with an uncomfortably young protagonist. Yes. It's like somewhere between a romance novel and like a book about a saint. Yeah. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so this goes towards like, because like you were saying, we, we don't want to censor books, but we do think, especially when you're writing young protagonists, so you're writing for teens... You have a responsibility. Yeah. And I think that the big thing, well, we were talking about this, like if like we were talking about how we both would have probably uncomplicatedly loved this book as teens, but what like messages would we have absorbed from it? Like, I mean, we both had eating disorders as teenagers. Yeah. And I would have absorbed that. And I did absorb that from other similar books. And, and also, you know, messaging about it is fine and good and normal for like a guy in his mid twenties to be attracted to a 16 year old. Mm -hmm. And like, that can be a good relationship. And also Um, just gratuitous sexual violence, I think is not something young teenagers should be exposed to, especially not when you're young enough that you don't have much exposure to sexuality Mm -hmm. because that can get uncomfortably close to normalizing yeah sexual violence and um slash like even seeing it as a rite of passage which is like a really uncomfortable notion Mm -hmm. um and i i definitely had like a murder complex as a teenager and definitely would read misery porn and be like yeah maybe if i was this like miserable i could justify my sadness you know and that's Mm -hmm. that's dangerous like i don't know if the response well I think I don't know if the responsibility is with the author or with the publisher, though. Yeah, I or mean, I the think the libraries it's, I or think the it's teachers. Both. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think authors have a responsibility not to write gratuitous sexual assault, and that is just something I will stand by. Mm-hmm. Um, and a responsibility, like, because I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm I'm gonna focus in on the eating disorder thing. Yeah. I think it's it's very tricky because I think that like. We need to be able to portray things like eating disorders in a book. But I think as an author, you have a responsibility to portray it in a way that makes it clear that even if the character thinks that it's okay, it is not okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think if you're going to write a character with an eating disorder, you need to figure out a way to write it where it doesn't leave your teenage audiences with the impression that eating disorders are a good thing. And I don't think this author thinks Sorha has an eating disorder. No. I think she thinks this is a righteous way to consume food, and that is mm-hmm. dangerous. So in my opinion, that's like on the publisher to catch. Yeah. Um, but there is. I mean, there is a matter of responsibility. There is a matter of influence. So yeah, I mean, Daughter of the Forest, it's, it gave us a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, um, clearly did not just unreservedly love it as we sometimes do um mm-hmm. but i think i mean the point of this show is is to have these conversations right yeah the reason we're not just reviewing books we like yeah unabashedly is so that we can have the conversations about publishing and writing and mm-hmm. marketing and 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And as as unfortunate it is that often the books that other people tell us to read are the books that we don't like, it is useful because we often end up picking books that we just like yeah. when we choose the books. So it is... It is helpful for other people to tell us to read books that we then do not like, although I always feel a little bit sorry. Yeah. And and would also love, because I actually, like, I um, I wish that we had, like, had Erica on this episode, because I, Erica, I really want to hear your pushback against right. what we've said, because you might have some, and that yeah. would be interesting. Yeah. I think it's also possible to... to be somebody who can say, yeah, there are flaws with it, but I love it as a retelling of a classic fairy tale. Classic fairy tales are dark. It didn't yeah. trigger me in these ways. And so for me, you know, I enjoy the retelling. And I can respect that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, like I said, when I read it, I put a lot of this stuff in a box and just didn't really deal with it. Yeah. And so I, I liked it much more before I processed it with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I have that effect on things. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, like, these just have, these happen to be issues that I'm extremely sensitized to, so I do really mm-hmm. pick up on them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thanks, Erica, for giving us this book, because we wouldn't mm. have had this conversation without yeah. it. Um, and I think these are issues that come up a lot in young adult lit, especially young adult lit published 10 to 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, misery porn is just something we've talked about so often. Yeah. With so many authors. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a good topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a fun conversation. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at Tefferbear and at thevalesasaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons. Catherine Wet- Resch? I'm so sorry, Catherine. I always trip over your last name. Catherine Resch, Chantal Thomas, Kat McGuire, and Lizzie Tenhove. We also have merch. You can hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the folks over at Tee Public. Our logo is so great. Hannah designed it. It has that 90s library vibe. People always tell me they like it. So if you want a tote bag to carry all your YA in, head to mm-hmm. Tee Public and get one. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hey everybody, we are the Don't Be Mad Podcast, partners of the Upford Network. My name is Matthew and I'm joined here as always with... Jason. Jamali. We cover everything from politics, sports, and pop culture. And you can catch us every Monday on all podcast platforms, and you can watch our videos on YouTube. Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Gal Chat Pod.